We are concluding our series on Psalms today. If you've been with us over the last four weeks, then you would have seen that we have gone through a number of different Psalms. And uh, the neat thing about the Psalms are uh, you get to walk in the lives of people, or David specifically, who walked with the Lord through different moments of his life. Uh, We kicked it off uh, by looking at Psalm chapter 8, actually. And in Psalm 8, we saw how uh, man was created different than the rest of all of creation. You know, the, the rest of all of creation was created and it was filled and it was, it was good and it was uh, made for us. And then he created man, but he didn't fill the earth with man. Man had to fill earth himself in an act of glorifying God through obedience and following his law and then raising each other up, teaching them what they had learned. And so there's this act that man was different than all of other creation, which made you realize that there's a purpose that man has. That's different than the rest of the world. There's a purpose there that we have been born into that we should faithfully follow, which led us to say, okay, if we are different, if there is a significance with our lives, then what is our purpose? Which led us to the second week. We went through Psalm 23, and and, and our purpose is that you follow the good shepherd, which we find out is Jesus Christ. You follow the good shepherd because the good shepherd is more than capable to give us all that we need. He provides for us all that we would ever want, all that we need. He provides for us exactly what he has for us to have. And then he restores us. He gives us refreshment and restoration and we're able to experience life in a sweetness with him as following him goes. And then he gives us guidance as we go forward and as we follow after him. He directs us on paths which are just for us, but also in line with what he has for us. And so he, we're able to escape possibly some, some things that would be negative or hard or would hurt us, and we're able to safely follow him whatever route it might go. Even if it seems treacherous at the time, there's a purpose for it, and we see it at the end as we look back. And then he protects us. He's more than capable to protect us from all things, and you see all that whenever you follow the good shepherd. So we we find out that we have a purpose. We find out what our purpose is to follow the good shepherd. And then last week we looked at how do you follow the good purpose? How do you follow the good shepherd? Which is our purpose, right? How do you fulfill that purpose? Well, you do it by you wake up and you start every day and you you have those affirmations of faith declaring who God is and what you believe. And if we start our day and end our day with this, we'll be centered and focused on God. And it's very important of us for it to review and realize what we believe about God because it's what he's declared about himself that we're repeating back to him. And he receives that as focused worship. And we worship God with our lives and we worship God with, uh, in unity together as a collection, as a people together from different backgrounds and different walks. And there's a beauty amongst it as we come here, like on a Sunday morning, we sing praises to God, but with our lives, we obediently and faithfully focus our worship on him and him alone. We aren't distracted by the other things in life, but we follow him. And then we have sincere prayer. If this God is a real God, he knows what's going on in your life. He knows what prayer requests you really have and what's really happening that you're having to deal with. And you, you share those with him in fellowship because there's a unity with God that isn't, isn't one where you're trying to gain his approval. He already loves you enough. He already loves you more than you love him. And you're just reciprocating that back and sharing your life with him, which he so gratefully receives. And we walk with hope. 
We walk with hope, and I, and I shared with you a blessing that's written at the end of the passage that it's not just a walk with hope that I hope it all works out, but it's a blessing and a promise that God will walk with you, and it's beautiful because he desires that. He wants to use you. That's your purpose. That's how you fulfill your purpose, which, which brings us to our conclusion, which is what happens when we fail at our purpose? What happens when we make a mistake? How do we respond and interact with a God that's been so loving? He's such a good shepherd. He's created us. He's given us such clear path on how to follow him. What happens when we mess that up? How do we respond? And we're gonna do that by looking at Psalm 51. So if you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 51 or open up your app to Psalm 51 or if there's a new technology, use that to get to Psalm 51. But we're gonna look at Psalm 51. I'd love for you to walk through it with us as we do that. Psalm 51 is a very humbling song. It has to be one of the most humbling songs in all of scripture for David to write. If you're not familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, I wanna give you a little bit of a background. So David is king over Israel. It's one nation. He is king over the whole thing. But it has been a trying time, and he has been faithfully following the Lord throughout that time. He was anointed as a young child to be the king, while another king was in charge, the first king of Israel, Saul. And when he was anointed to be king, uh, he began to be in the king's presence through a couple of different things that happened to the point where Saul was angry about and jealous of David and the following he had because God's anointing was with him. It says God's spirit was with him. So David had to run for his life. And when he ran for his life, he faithfully followed the Lord. He sought the Lord often. He kept turning back to him. He kept loving the Lord with his words and sharing it with us. And we saw that journey. Then finally Saul dies and David is given the throne. He's given the king. He's given the crown. And, and, and it comes after a long time of running. And, and as he's in the present, he, he still sincerely wants to seek the Lord with all his life. And he wants the world to, too. And so he's living in the city of David, which is right outside of modern-day Jerusalem. And what he does, or in modern-day Jerusalem, and what he does is he wants to bring the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant down so that people can worship him. And he can have direct fellowship so that when they come to the king, they can also go worship the real king. It's a very faithful and holy thing that he chooses, chooses to do. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant down, and uh, he has a desire to build the temple for him, but God says, no, you can't do it. And so this, now he has done so many things, and he's faithfully followed the Lord, that he has to actually now be the king, the true king over Israel. And at a time, shortly after this, whenever kings were supposed to go out to war, and lead their troops, it actually says that David stayed behind. And when he stayed behind, he was disobeying God, disobedient to God and his role that God put him in. So what did he do? Well, at night he would go wander around and look for things to do, right? And he found himself on top of the roof. I do not think this is the first time David ended up on a roof. I think in this story that David wandered up to the roof many times because he knew what was going on around that time that he could see from the top of the roof. I think he looked over and because he's on the highest point, on the highest part of the hill and he's looking down at the, the, the houses that are below him, he knows what happens on the roof of those houses. And there's a lady by the name of Bathsheba who was taking a bath up there and he saw her and he wanted her. 
His servant said, actually, that's uh, Uriah the Hittite's wife. He says, bring her to me anyway. And he does that. And he ends up sleeping with her and conceives a child. This causes a problem for David. So instead of David recognizing the sin and what he had done, he calls Uriah back as a soldier from war. And calls him back to the city. He asks him for a report, and then he sends him to his house to go and sleep with his wife so that they can have an excuse or have a reason for a child being bored. Uriah refuses to do that because if the soldiers are at war, why should he have that opportunity to be with his wife? And so he has a banquet the night before, before he goes out, gets him inebriated, and sends him back home, hoping that will work. Uriah still noble responds. He does not go back to his home. So this leads to David trying to figure it out again. So he writes a letter issuing a death warrant or a death note for Uriah, seals it so Uriah can't open it. He brings it back to the battle lines and the note says this. It says, I would like, tells the general, the, the one in command, I would like Uriah to be at the front of the lines where danger is at its utmost. I would like to push them into danger and then take the troops back so that he is one of the casualties. And it works. Uriah ends up passing away. David brings Bathsheba in his house and he still hasn't repented. He still hasn't turned to the Lord. God sends a prophet and the prophet comes to him and shares with him what went on. And at that moment, he realizes it. He recognizes how he sinned against God and I believe this psalm was either written immediately after that or as a reflection of the prayers that he shared with God during that midst because a baby was born and that baby had complications and he was praying for his life to be saved, that this would not be a consequence of his sin, not another life. Which brings us to Psalm 51. What happens when you fail at your purpose? He starts off with what I believe is a presentation where he comes before the king. He puts himself, now he is the king, but he puts himself in a position where he comes before the king, recognizing that God is in a position of authority over David. And he shares this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from all my sin. This presentation that he has isn't dissimilar from what you see in scripture, actually, and stories that you've probably heard, right? When you come before the king, you have to come with such a humble and a, a, a posture that when you present yourself before the king, you're putting yourself in jeopardy, possibly, right? There are many stories in scripture like this. Daniel, when he went before the king, there was this, uh, this, this statement that you must recite according to Nebuchadnezzar, or at least I think you must because they all do it. And he comes before the king many times. And he says, O king, live forever. And this is a declaration of who he is. This is a declaration of how great he is and that I, I recognize that you are so mighty that it would be good for the world for you just to live forever. It's almost given him a sense of uh, divinity or being able to survive and you're recognizing how great and how powerful he is. And who are you in comparison to this person that you would wish them? Oh, king, live forever. Esther did something similar. She was actually the spouse. She was the wife of a king. And then when she went to Artaxerxes, she presented herself before him. And at that time, if you brought yourself before the king without him summoning you, it was incredibly dangerous. 
And when she went before the king, she stood there knowing that if he was not happy with her or he was not pleased by her presence, he could have her killed immediately. And so you wait and you just hope that he extends his scepter, which he actually does, and then she is allowed to share what her request is. You also see this with Nehemiah as he approaches the king, which is actually Artaxerxes. Esther went to Xerxes. But when he goes before Artaxerxes, he actually prays to God before he even arrives. He says, let there be success between me and my king as I acknowledge him. He has a job to be around the king, to protect the king by being his cupbearer. And so as he is around, he doesn't even bring the request up. He's just so sad that the king turns to him and asks, and then he can share Coming before the king is a very important thing. And David recognizes what he brings at that time, which is a whole lot of badness, right? Did you see all the mys in there? My transgression, my iniquity, my sin. This is what I have to present before you, king. He doesn't have gifts to give the king. He has troubles to give the king. And he recognizes that, which puts him in doubly danger, if that's even a word. And he cries out to God based off of God's character, not his character. It's God's character. It's your mercifulness. It's your unfailing love. It's your great compassion that I come before you and recognize that even though I'm putting my life in your hands, God, I recognize how good and how great you are. This posturing before the king is very, very important. Um, I think we're too cavalier when we approach the Lord sometimes. By the way, I'm guilty. Do we recognize how powerful and how mighty he is and what we actually have to offer uh, when we talk to him? Yes, we are his sons and daughters. We are accepted loved ones. We can come before the king. And it's not that we are too cavalier in our attitude and he won't receive it. It's not recognizing the fullness of who God is when we go and approach him. It's important to recognize who we're praying to. He is the God of all creation. We don't have to be taught how to do this. We do this naturally. I've seen it done many times. I've done it myself. It's like a 16-year-old girl going to her dad to ask for some money, right? Hey, dad, um, you know what? I just wanted to come by and say, you have done a great job of being a father. Uh, I've been blown away, especially here lately. Here lately, you have stepped it up, and I want you to know I have acknowledged it, and it's fantastic, and I'm receiving it. In fact, it's a joy to be around you. And let me tell you, oh my goodness, the way you cut that long and edge it out. I am proud to call this my home, which you provided for us. How magnificent is that that you would come and do that actually for us? Oh, and you know what? You're so funny. Don't tell mom. You're funnier than mom. I just, just so amazing. And by the way, mom, boy, did you ever marry up? Good job. Did God have his hand on you when you got to marry her? And I got to tell you, that is fantastic. I love being at home, but it just so happens I was invited to go to the movies with some friends of which you've approved. And I'm so grateful that you would even look after me in that way to prove friends for me. And it would be fantastic if I could, you know, possibly go to the movies with them and just enjoy part of the life that you've given for us. And if you happen to have 30 bucks, that would be a bonus. Let me tell you, you are fantastic. You see the posturing that we naturally have when we go to someone and share with them, right? It's already started in my eight-year-old daughter. It has already started. Most of it's revolved around whether or not I'll get her food or a snack or something, but I'm telling you, I can see it coming. 
But it's that attitude, it's that recognition of who God is that David has right here as he opens up. He doesn't open up with confession right off the bat. He says there is something to confess. We don't tend to think about the severity of our sin and our sin is more severe than we realize. The only time we really think about the severity of our sin is if number one, someone else does it or number two, there's consequences that are so weighty we can't get around it. The truth is, is that all our sin has consequences and worthy of death. That's what scripture says. He agreed. <laughs> but God's goodness, his mercy, and his loving kindness keeps us from seeing some of the consequences that are really deserved because of our sin. And when we go before the Lord, he is the one that can cleanse us. He is the one that can forgive us. And that is good to go before the Lord. So number one, present yourself before the Lord. You don't hide from your sin or hide it from God. You go and acknowledge it. Number two, then you confess. David does it this way. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. It's always visible, he always experiences it. And then he says this peculiar statement, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. This statement against you and you alone, I have sinned. Didn't you hear the story of Bathsheba and Uriah, the child? How about his servant that was in the castle with him that he told to go get that lady and that he knew that wasn't right? How about the commander that receives the order that actually has to push him forward so that he can die and pull back the troops? He sinned against a lot of people, but David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. It's not that he hasn't sinned against other people and caused other people to sin. It's that in comparison, the responsibility that David has as a follower of God, he has jeopardized the way people look at God based off of his sin for now and for ongoing. In Hebrew, there's this little poetry idea called comparison where um, it's not necessarily accurate in its statement that he's only sinned against God, but comparatively, yes, he's sinned against Bathsheba, but you more so because I'm supposed to be a representative of you and you've given me all this to declare your glory. And then he says, you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. God is the one. God is the one that has the right to respond to this however he wants. You know, confession and humility is one of our uh, greatest witnesses and testimonies to the unbelievers right now in our world. It is, it's confession. You know, um, it used to be that other people would look at our church and look at our world and look at uh, Christians and they would say, they're, they're morally better than we are. 
We reject God full out. We want to enjoy life and that sort of thing. But we recognize that the church has integrity and is worth following and you would go there. And we know the people in there are good. That used to be the view of the world, but something's happened. Now, the church and Christians and God himself is actually morally inferior to the world is the view that they have. For example, God is unloving and intolerant and enslaving because he won't let me act out on the way I feel like being. He wants to keep me from enjoying life where I'm caught up in the sin that he calls sin, but really it's just what I choose to do. Why would you be so judgmental? Yet, it's confession and repentance that ends up being good news to those people because they don't see that very much. Because in today's culture, it's not so much I've wronged, but it's you've wronged, and to the extent you probably need to get fired for what you did. There's a blaming culture and there's a victim culture that puts people probably inadvertently up on a pedestal where they're now casting judgments out, which I don't think they intended to do, but they don't understand how someone else could judge them. And so it's the fight or flight where they chose to fight and cast accusations against the church and against Christians and against our God and our his word. But it's the repentant stories and the confessing stories that actually bring good news to other people because they're experiencing this. Our go group, when they train to go share, they don't follow the whole, um, if you die today, do you think you go to heaven or hell model. They don't follow the, uh, let me walk you through the Roman road right off the bat. But what gets them in the door and what gets them heard as they share who Jesus Christ is, is actually something called a 15-second testimony. I'm going to share with you what a 15-second testimony is, but it's, it's the sharing of a transformed life that they, we used to be this, but actually God saved me from this. Listen to, this is mine, by the way. I was prideful. This is true. I want you to know this is true. I was prideful. I sought to do whatever I thought was acceptable to other people because I cared what other people thought about me. I cared about them. I didn't care about God. This led me to being unhappy in my life. And actually, I don't think I had any real friends. I was fed up with my life, and I asked God to forgive me for running from him for so long and rejecting Jesus. And now I have a peace in my life. I have friends in my life. And I have a joy in my life that I can't explain. Do you have a story like that? And that question, do you have a story like that? Have you been broken? Have you been hurt? Gives them a chance to share also. It's that confessing that I was the one that failed that actually opens up the conversation to talk about Jesus. If we don't take seriously the confession, we will always be enslaved by that. We will always be enslaved by that sin that will inhibit us to being able to share with other people so they'll receive the richness of what Jesus offers, which is a new life and freedom from that. When I was, uh, when I was in high school, I had this group of friends. I did normal high school things that were just dumb. <laughs> and everybody saw me do them. 
And when we used to get back together, we would talk about those things that we used to do. And everybody would share, and they'd make fun of each other. You do this, you do this, you do this. Well, after becoming a believer, after a few years away, I actually went back to that place in Mississippi, and I got around my three other friends. There was four of us that got together. And they said, Kevin, do you remember when you did this? And I actually said, and this is not a joke. I said, yeah, I was an idiot back then. And this guy named John just goes, oh my gosh, dude, I was an idiot too. And he just started spilling his beans. He's like, man, I wish I could have a freedom like you had. I wish I could, man, I wish I could just, gosh, I don't have purpose in life. Like y'all are doing what y'all think y'all are supposed to do. I'm still in college. I'm failing out of college. I just don't even know. He just started opening up his life only because I just said, yeah, I was an idiot back then. I confessed to be an idiot. That was it. It looked so different that he was ready to share. Your confession is more than just for you and your restoration with God. It can be restoration for other people as well, to give them the open door. Number three, what do you do next? Petition. Notice whose actions these are. This is focused on what God can do for him, not what he can do for God. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and the gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You heard, cleanse me, wash me, let me hear joy and gladness, let me rejoice, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, create me a pure heart, restore me. But there's one negative in there. Did y'all see it? Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. When, when David was called and summoned to be in Saul's presence to play the harp before him because he had a disturbing spirit that really wrecked him and he, um, and he needed to be calmed down because there was just something going on and all the people realized it. Is, uh, when they, it actually begins, that chapter begins by saying, the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And then they say, hey, by the way, there's this really neat little kid, he's a shepherd, he's High integrity, everybody likes him. He's a good-looking kid. He plays a harp, plays a pretty mean harp. He has some cool lyrics and everything. It's the modern stuff. People are listening to it these days. You should check it out. And I believe, like I said the last three sermons, I believe that he, when he played that harp, he was singing the psalms that he wrote on the hillside. I think he was a songwriter this whole time. I think the words that the Lord put in our scripture are the words he was singing to Saul, and it gave him comfort because he experienced in the spirit and a peace with God that, he had, that had left him. But the last line of that actually says, and the spirit of the Lord is with him. Saul says, get that guy. That's what I'm lacking. I need that. David remembers that and he's fearful that maybe this judgment, maybe this sin, God's gonna remove his spirit from me. And he recognizes that Saul no longer can lead the people. And David desired to fulfill what God had asked him to do and anointed him for. And there's a fear there. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is David recognizing 
the severity of his sin. And he leans all on God, all himself. This is like, I'm telling a lot of high school stories, but here's another one. This is like a high schooler boy that has his girlfriend and he breaks up with her because he thinks he has something good going on. And when he breaks up with her, he realizes everybody really liked her and didn't like him. You know what I'm talking about? He's like, oh no, I gotta get her back. And so he goes back to her. He's like, listen, if you come back to me, I'm telling you, I will follow you. I'll be, I'll be nice to you. And oh my gosh, you'll never have a boyfriend treat you like that because he wants to be back in. He doesn't want to lose his spot in society. And this is David crying out to God, God, I wanna be used by you because I know when I followed you, I experienced a joy and I know what that's like and I know I can be a benefit for you. Um, let me just say something about the Spirit in the Old Testament here and when the Spirit is taken away from somebody. That can't happen to us if you confess in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the Father's will that you will be, be, um, be saved and be sealed in the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, 29 through 30 says this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The Son's ability actually is uh, Jesus' ability in Romans 10, 11 says anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And, and the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13 is that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And actually later in Ephesians 4, it says until the day of redemption. You've been marked by the Spirit until the day of redemption. You have, there's no jeopardy of you losing the Holy Spirit. But what we can do is we can fall under the influence of sin in our lives and we can quench and we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Holy Spirit is neglect. It's not following faithfully after the Lord with our lives and therefore you don't hear the Holy Spirit because you're quenching him and you aren't following him faithfully, which we've all been called to do. Grieving the Holy Spirit is when we've chosen to follow an act of sin in our life to gain um, identity or gain happiness or joy from and you're now influenced by that more so than the Holy Spirit. We can do that. The Holy Spirit is still there if you're confessed to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but you'll never enjoy the fullness of life like God promises. And this petition here that David shares is he wants that fullness of life back. So you come before the Lord, you confess before the Lord, you present your request. And then I'm gonna actually put these next two together. These next two, David makes a vow to never go back and then he asks for restoration, which is the last one. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sin will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do not delight in sacrifice, or you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart to you, God. You will not despise that. Notice what he does the very thing that we're so shameful for bringing before the Lord becomes a megaphone towards others to declare the goodness of the Lord. Following the Lord and confessing your sin does not enslave you to have to follow him. It frees you up to follow him. This is what's learned in our ministry that's called regeneration. 
And if you're struggling with sin or you have some brokenness in your life that you need to be able to confess, you need to learn how to confess, or there's something that's just not right, I highly encourage you to go and be a part of that because I've heard more freedom stories in that than I can count. I heard one last week, actually. The closest this person's ever been with the Lord is now, and he's only on step three in Regen. But this is a vow to be used. Earlier, I read part of Psalm 32 as our prayer. In Psalm 32, I think was written in response to the way God interacted with David when he shared Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, verse eight says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eyes on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by the bit and bridle, or they will not conform to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord, be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. This is David sharing with others. David is fulfilling the vow he said that I will teach transgressors your ways. And he no longer is ashamed of his sin, but he uses his sin as a megaphone to declare how great and how good God is. This is what I explained just a little while ago. Um, It's absolutely beautiful. You know, when I was a, when I became a believer and I finally confessed in Jesus Christ and quit running from him for so long, Uh, I prayed a prayer afterwards where I said, God, I'm tired of running from you. If you open a door, I'll run through it, whatever it might be. And for some reason, I felt in my heart that I just needed to go to my dad and share with him kind of the way I've been, you know, straying from the Lord. My dad's a pastor. And so I went to him and I said, hey, this is the way I strayed from the Lord. And this is what God's done for me and he's given me. And my dad said, oh, man, that's amazing. Do you mind sharing that Sunday with the church? I was like, God, that's the open door. Are you kidding me? All right, so faithfully, I walked through it and I, I shared with the whole church exactly what I'd share with my dad that night. It was humbling, it was embarrassing, but it, it, it was interesting how empowering it became for me and how freeing I felt when I shared. And three people wrote letters to me talking about how that message just moved them in such a way that they connected back with God or followed God. You remember earlier when I gave my 15-second testimony, I felt like I was alone and had no friends? Immediately when I walked through that door that God had opened for me, I had three letters of people that just confided with me. People really knew me and I really knew them. And I've still got those letters. I could read them out loud to you and give them back. I'm just kidding. But what I could do is I can pull those letters out and remember the faithfulness that God had. Then it ends with restoration here. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifice of the righteous. In burnt offerings and offered whole, then the bulls will be offered on your altar. It's a full restoration. Remember earlier we said, I have no sacrifice to give you. And then he turned around and says, by the way, when you restore me, I'll give you sacrifice. You know, some of us have it backwards with our life with God. We think, if I go to church and I do these good things, then God will accept me and I'll feel whole. Where God says, no, you don't have to wait till Sunday. Right there where you are, pray, confess, and then come worship me. Worship with your heart and your mind, and then come worship me with the body. That's how we should respond when we fail. I want to leave you with this.
God is not surprised by your sin, even if you're a believer. You didn't catch him off guard. He knew Peter was gonna deny him three times. And he still went back to restore him. All he's asking is to come before the king. I gave the illustration earlier that coming before the king is dangerous unless he summons you. God has already summoned you. Go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy, your love, your grace, your goodness. We thank you that you're a great king that receives us. Even when we have nothing to offer, no gifts, nothing. And Lord, help us to be obedient to where your spirit's moving, to follow you faithfully, and confess what's really going on in our lives so that we can experience the goodness of being restored back to you. And Lord, for those of us that do follow you, use us so that we recognize where you're moving and we can give you the glory you deserve through our lives. By your son's name we pray, amen.